Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. If I was the first woman in 2020 in the Kentucky House to give birth while serving, that means we have not had nearly enough women in their 20s, 30s, and 40s serving. Welcome back to episode 18.1 of What the Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This week is actually very special because we have a three-episode mini-series for you brought to you by our friends over at Donor Perfect, where we're taking a deep dive into the strategies, mindsets, and deep-rooted beliefs that we can learn from politics and political fundraising. From a nonprofit perspective, it seemed to me that political fundraising broke all the rules around nurturing donors and projecting constant urgency. At least that's what I thought before getting to know members and leaders at Leadership for Educational Equity, LEAD. But it turns out there's a way to raise money that's quite different from how many of us see political fundraising in our inboxes every day. Instead, most political fundraising focuses on building community and providing a sense of belonging, just like in the nonprofit world, but with some new mind-blowing lessons. So today on episode 18.1, I'm kicking us off by talking to the amazing Josie Raymond. Josie is the state representative for Kentucky's 31st district and the director of elected leadership fellowships at Leadership for Educational Equity. She ran her campaign for office while being a mom of two toddlers and later became the first representative in the Kentucky State House to give birth while serving. We talk about her passion for change and the reality of being a mom who was writing fundraising notes on diapers. She's so real and honest about her own fundraising and campaign and the harsh realities that single parents and women in particular face running for office. But guess what? there is something we can all do to make a difference in our local communities. And the more we embrace our role in civic leadership, the more we can create more equitable systems and spaces together. I'm so excited for you to meet the hilarious, brilliant, and courageous Josie Raymond. So let's dive in. Welcome, everyone. I am so thrilled to be here today with Kentucky State Representative Josie Raymond. Josie, thank you so much for joining us today on What the Fundraising. Hey there. Thank you. I want to dive into all of your history around your entry into the political world, but I'd love if you just start giving a little background on you and what brings you to this moment in time. I know even in your process of running for office, there were so many personal things going on. And so I just love for folks to get a sense for who you are. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. The fact that I was invited makes me feel like validated as a fundraiser. So I hope I have something to offer the universe. But so I grew up here in Louisville, Kentucky, in the neighborhood that I now represent in the legislature. And I I say I grew up in poverty with privilege. And I was a free lunch kid here. And that really shaped sort of my life and my career. I got a great education, had some great mentors, had opportunities that many of my peers didn't, recognized that, and so said, I'm going to commit my career and my life to ending poverty in America. That's a big goal. But I I feel very strongly about naming, naming that big of a goal, right? And it has guided all of my career decisions and civic decisions along the way. I was not one of those people who was like, I came out of the womb and like started planning my run for president. (laughs) Those people exist and good for them. I wasn't one. I was a journalist writing about poverty issues. Then I became a teacher through Teach for America. 
And then I was at College Access Nonprofits. I've been a student success coach in higher ed. And each of these steps, like doing so much direct service, I thought, you know, I can grant dignity and help individual students and families, but there's the same systemic barriers creating these challenges for them. And so where can I really tackle these systemic challenges? And then it was like, Eureka, elected office. And now I've been there three years and I joke like, like, is that really the place? But for now, (laughs) that is where I'm trying to make my impact on poverty. Wow. Wow. I mean, I think your story is so inspiring. I think especially to the folks who are listening to this because you share so many similarities with so many of our listeners in your own journey. I actually did citizen schools teaching fellowship program. That was one of my first nonprofit roles. And so really I'm also rooted in the education work. There's a lot of overlap in our education work that you've done over the course. Yeah. And I thought, I thought I'm going to be a teacher forever. Mm. Uh, and then I taught two years. My students who were 16 year old eighth graders were using punctuation for the first time in their lives, which was pretty incredible, but ultimately not going to change the trajectory of their mm-hmm. lives. And so that's where I was again, I'm, I'm a really impact hungry person. And so I thought I'm willing to step away from you all to try and find a space where I'm, I'm making a greater impact on the world that is shaping you all. Okay, so let's dive into that experience. Tell us about your experience running for office. Take us through that journey for a second. So I got this idea in my head, right? And I, I was moving home to Kentucky from, I lived in New York and Indianapolis and Oakland, started building my own family, moved home to Louisville where I'm from, started working with young people here and service felt different here. You know, the kids here felt like me growing up and it, and I just felt more rooted and got this idea that maybe I could make an impact in elected office. And I thought, well, I've been a teacher. I'm comfortable enough with public speaking. I care deeply about individuals. I think I would be good at that constituent services piece. And I'm pretty, I'm just pretty hardcore and focused. And I think I could run a really good campaign. So I felt like I checked enough boxes and said, okay, I'm going to run for office. So I looked around, Congress felt far off to me. I wasn't interested in the challenges at the city council level. And I identified my state representative role in my district, I thought was was filled by somebody who was not super connected to our community and was not doing the best that he could for our community. So I thought that's my race. And I just started learning everything I could about campaigning. Now I know how naive I was. <laughs> and, and like, now I know what people were saying behind my back about how crazy I was. Um, <laughs> because it is so rare for just a concerned citizen, just a concerned mom to put their name on the ballot. And I think people don't know that. Usually the people who run for office have been connected through a political party or they're sort of tapped as the next up chosen by the person who's retiring, these sorts of things. And it's very, very rare for for just your average person to say, I'm going to run. That's amazing. Had there been in your region another person who had been tapped to take over that race and you were just didn't realize that that was how things typically worked. And so you were like, all right, I guess it will be me. (laughs) No, see, see, I I started by challenging that incumbent. Mm. And it was It was a Democratic primary. I'm a Democrat and I was running against the incumbent Democrat who'd been there 26 years since I was a little girl in this district. And that, of course, in many places is is frowned upon, right? But (laughs) but I was so, I was just so hungry to Mm. make an impact on the issues that I care about. And, you know, I had, as I went around the city and, you know, met the influential folks and told them my plan, the whole, the whole thing, trying to build some support, I heard a lot like, wait your turn, you know, or, well, what if we could talk him into retiring in a couple of years? And I just felt like our challenges are great. Let's not wait. You know, we can't wait. And I thought, you know, I think I can learn what it takes to run a good campaign. There's so many books and seminars and resources and, I'm a member of Leadership for Educational Equity, which is an organization that develops civic leaders. And so I got coaching there and I really was blinded by my desire to make an impact on poverty in Kentucky. And that made everything else, you know, knocking on thousands of doors, raising a whole lot of money seem doable or not as scary as they are, you know, when you're just looking at that obstacle. 
Okay. So I'm super glad you brought up the fundraising because I'm curious when you were making this decision and it sounds like what's so inspiring about your story is that it sounds like really like the decision was just from such a heart centered place around this is the impact I want to make and not necessarily from like, here's my spreadsheet of all the pros and cons of running for, for this seat. But was there anything that sort of came up for you when you thought about, oh my gosh, okay, I'm doing this around the fundraising component, any sort of fears or discomfort or overarching sort of apprehension about that? piece of it? Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you you receiving that message that it was heart-centered. I mean, when I started running, I didn't know what the job of state representative paid. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I didn't know any of that. Are there benefits? And it was much, much later when it looked like I would win that a veteran female rep took me aside and Mm -hmm. took me through the nuts and bolts of it, which I appreciated. Now I try and pay that forward. But no, I grew up, my family wasn't very political and I didn't know elected officials. I'd never been involved in a campaign. And so I think I had some of that feeling that so many people have about politics of like, this is kind of an icky business. Like I recognized that policy is made through politics. So I was willing to engage in it to get to the policymaking space. But I thought, you know, campaigns, there's just so much money flying around and like, is it dirty money? And, and what's it all for anyway? Like, (laughs) and I, my biggest barrier was maybe really early on when someone said this campaign is going to cost a hundred thousand dollars. And I thought, a hundred thousand dollars. What good could we do in our community with a hundred thousand dollars? And of course, it's not a huge pile of money that's sitting there and you get to decide whether it's used toward a campaign or buying a family, a home or something like that. But, and of course I was much more frugal and learned to do things on my own. And, and so it didn't cost a hundred thousand dollars, but really I had to learn what it was all about and get comfortable with the idea of, well, the funds that I raise help me spread a message, a message of a more inclusive community, a stronger community, a healthier community, a better educated community, and invite people into the political process who haven't traditionally been involved as donors and as voters. So I had to do some of that work for myself really early on. And then I could get to learning, how do you raise money for a political campaign Some of the best advice I got very early on from someone who was coaching me in the campaign was make three budgets, bronze, silver, and gold. So I did that. And in in the campaign, that kind of looks like, okay, the bronze budget is what I need to not be embarrassed, right? I'm going to send three pieces of mail to all the likely voters, and I'll have little cards to hand out when I knock on doors. And that's about it. And then the silver was like, oh, you had some yard signs. And then the the gold was, okay, we're advertising on Facebook every day, you know, all of this. And when I made those budgets and started getting quotes from printers, like really getting in the nitty gritty of it, I saw, oh, I think I can run a good race for $15,000. And then I could create the spreadsheet of how many people do I think will support me in this race? Oh my gosh. When I really get down to it, I think hundreds of people from college, from growing up together, my aunts and uncles, you know, will support me with donations of $25 or $50. And I started to just put those pieces together and see this is doable. This is, this is learnable and this is doable. Wow. There's something that you said a few minutes ago that I want to go back to because it's something that I've been thinking about so much in preparation for these conversations about political fundraising, which in all transparency is new to me. I mean, I feel like I'm learning a lot through my interactions with Lee around the differences and similarities between fundraising for political campaigns and for nonprofits. And But one of the things you said is around this piece about the cost of the campaign. And I think this belief that we have maybe outside folks like me around that that investment of money, that $100,000 or $15,000, whatever ended up being, is there to either win or lose. This entire amount, because if I think about it from the nonprofit framework, right? We invest in something, a solution, and it either works or it doesn't work. And so when that sort of same mindset gets a to campaign fundraising, it's like, okay, you either win or you don't win. And so then if I've donated to your campaign and you didn't win, was that just money wasted? 
But what I think you're saying or what you were saying and what I continue to hear from folks is about how much important value is in the campaigning itself that really, I think from an investment and a fundraising standpoint is a really important message. What you said about how long was your campaign for that from beginning to end? Oh, I ran about 18 months. So I think about 18 months of you engaging people in your local community, in what's happening around them, educating them on topic, understanding what's really important to them, creating priorities based on this data you're collecting. I mean, $100,000, in my opinion, is nothing for the amount of like work <laughs> work that you did to right, bring your right. community together, right? Like election aside, even. What do you think about that? Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for that. I I felt like I had a lot of public education or civic education that I was doing through the campaign. One initial baseline piece is your donation to my political campaign, any political campaign. It's not for me. It's not for the candidate. My bank account didn't grow during the campaign. There's more money in my campaign account than there is in my personal account, for sure. But it's not it's not a favor and it's not charity either. It's an investment in the movement of a campaign and the values of the campaign. And I would say, I look to the house to my left, right? And, I, and it's a, a family of six Somali Muslim immigrants, right? I look to the family across my cul-de-sac, and this is Louisville, Kentucky, and a lot of people don't think of it this way. Um, there's four generations of Bhutanese refugees across my cul-de-sac. And I think, aren't these people worth the investment, right, of receiving the piece of mail, of being invited into the political process, of saying, I would be honored if you would cast your first vote as a new American citizen for me. But if I lost, if any candidate loses, the money that was invested in that campaign, I, I don't consider wasted. When I was knocking on doors, so many people would say, you're the first candidate to ever knock on my door. And I would think, well, you deserve that. And you're worth that. And that's free, of course, <laughs> to, to walk on someone's porch and knock on their door. And then you're going to need about eight cents to hand them that little card. <laughs> but I invited people in, right? We had conversations. People felt heard for the first time. Some people wanted to yell at me and like, okay, I'll give you that experience. I was able to hold the incumbent that I was challenging accountable in a way that he hadn't been for years and years. I was able to raise issues. My top legislative priority is early childhood education and expanding access to pre-K in Kentucky. And that was not in the conversation. And all of a sudden, it's a topic in the debate that folks are watching. Even though my opponent and I were in the same political party, we were asked the top issue in our district. And he said traffic and I said hunger. So those are two very different visions. And so I had gotten to that place that I think all candidates have to get to, which is like, why is it okay if I run and lose? And what good can come out of it? And you can share that message with donors as well, that you're investing in an experience and a movement and a community building effort, strengthening our democracy and setting the stage for more people to engage in the political process going forward as voters, donors, and candidates. So I love that. And I couldn't agree more. And I actually think it's a lesson for nonprofits as well around transparency when you're trying new things or putting yourself out there to test a new solution to a problem. Just the conversation around all the value created in the in-between, how we typically define success in our culture culture being America as a massive umbrella statement there. But <laughs> tell me about that piece. So what you just said about you can talk to your donors about this. Did you have that level of transparency with your donors at the beginning, maybe before you knew that you were going to win, where you were sharing with them, look, this isn't about whether or not I win or lose this election. It's about my role in having these issues heard and holding you know, this person accountable. Yes. So, I mean, that was the pitch early on, especially when the race did not look favorable. Mm. <laughs> there, there was a lot of transparency, like concrete and more theoretical. I remember an email, a fundraising email I put out that said, yard signs cost $6.36. Mm. <laughs> you know, you're so used to seeing them everywhere. Mm. And I just want you to know, like, this is what they <laughs> cost and this is why I'm asking. And the more concrete I was, the more donations we would get digitally, at least. But no, I would say, you know, I'm campaigning on early childhood education. When's the last time you heard about that? Especially from this candidate, never, right? And so there would be people who say, you know what, I want to hear that. 
debate mm-hmm. being had. And so I'll invest in that. And then as we were, you know, doing sharing messaging or doing social media, I would do selfies with people at the door and say, here's Susan, she's on oxygen and she's 78. And she just told me no one's ever knocked before, you know, and for people who are invested in building and strengthening our democracy, I think that was valuable enough to kick in or kick in again, right? The 10 or 15 or 20 bucks to keep me going. And I do want to ask, you had mentioned that the money that you're raising wasn't going to you personally. So how do folks who are running for office survive personally? Are they paid anything by their campaign? Do they need to have another job at the same time? How are folks making that work? Oh, it really varies, right? I mean, there's, I don't know, 100,000 elected positions across the country, something like this. For the state legislature in Kentucky, we're a part-time legislature. So I'm in our capital, Frankfurt, January through March each year, and then a couple days a month the rest of the year. So I was working full-time at a university, coaching students who had barriers to graduation. And I used up my vacation days. You know, I would take a day every month to go and knock on doors during the day to try and catch retirees who were at home, you know, and then I would also knock on doors in the evenings a couple days a week. But I used up my vacation days. It was really challenging. And, you know, if a reporter would call, I wanted to call right back and get, you know, get the newspaper. But I had a student in front of me who needed counseling, you know, on how to pay for their next semester. So it's a hard balance. And that's why you see in legislatures and city councils and Congress, especially very wealthy people serving for the most part, retirees, lawyers in private practice, successful entrepreneurs. There are very few elected officials who have a day job. And that's something we need to continue to lift up and name and do whatever we can to break down barriers. You know, it's like poisonous to propose legislation to pay yourself more. (laughs) Right. And I haven't done it. But there are some really good conversations going on across the country about, you know, should um, legislators, for example, be a full time, a full time position with the living wage that allows people to focus just on that. They'll be more effective and it will allow single parents in in ways that they aren't now. It will allow young people in. It will allow people with student debt. It will allow hourly workers and low wage workers in. And those are voices that are missing from these spaces. And when their voices are missing from the policymaking spaces, you see them left out of meaningful policy. Yeah, I think that's so important. I'm going to ask this from a very ignorant place, but could you have paid yourself from your budget, from your campaign budget? Or is that not allowed? So that's not allowed unless you're running for Congress. When you're running for Congress, you can do that. And there's some rule about you're allowed to pay yourself your previous salary or the congressional salary, whichever's lower. I think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez paid herself from her campaign fund, you know, which was a very big fund. And she's been very open that she was low wage when she was running. For the most part, people who run for Congress are not taking advantage of that provision because they don't need to. But no, people who are running for local office or state office need to be working a day job or have a spouse who can support them, which is one reason why you don't see single people doing it as often. It's very challenging. You need to have a lot go right in your life to be in a place where you can run for office these days. First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. Wow. Yeah, that is really sad, honestly. But when we think about how to fix some of the biggest systemic problems and think about how to have more representation in these elected offices, because especially because folks are typically not going straight to congressional races, right? They're starting in some of these smaller, more localized races. And so if they don't have the financial capacity or family structure to support them winning locally, then that's seems like a really hard barrier to get over. 
you'll hear personal stories, lived experience is so important in policymaking spaces. And so like in the Kentucky legislature, you'll often hear, you know, I share, I was a free lunch kid or people who talk about they received food stamps or other assistance, but it's always past tense because we were able to get to a, a, a stable place where we could run for office. We have um, one renter in the Kentucky legislature out of 138 members. We have one renter. So that's an outsized burden on that representative <laughs> to speak for the hundreds of thousands of renters we have in Kentucky because they're not able to be there and share their experience. I'm so passionate about women in particular in their 20s, 30s, and 40s entering local and state elected office because that's where you get that that bench, that pipeline. You know, if you want to see female governors and female Congress people, of which there are too few, people need opportunities to enter at lower levels earlier. And too many women are locked out right now, systemically locked out. I will make one point. Uh, you can't pay yourself if you're running for, for an office below Congress. But I followed the lead of women across the country during my campaign in 2018 and asked my state uh, election finance office for approval to use campaign funds for child care. This was sort of a nationwide movement. I got approval here in Kentucky. Other women have been successful in other states, and some other women have been unsuccessful in some other states. But this is a movement now to put this into statute nationwide to say that campaign funds can be used for childcare, And that's one of the structural barriers that we're trying to break down that will allow more moms of young children in particular to run and win. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting to hear that that's happening. And I wanted to ask you about that. What's it like being a mama with little ones doing this work? <laughs> I think you ran your campaign when your second was really young, right? Yes. So when I first ran, my kids were three and one. And now my husband and I look at pictures from the campaign trail and we just think, what were we doing? And, you know, the baby starts screaming during an event. My husband would sort of whisk him away. Another reason why two-parent families are advantaged in this area. I was so blinded, right, by, by thinking of the impact that I could make in this office that I thought our family can make this work. You know, and we did, but not without struggles. And now serving, you know, I miss baseball games. I miss bedtime. I miss dinner time. And now my kids are seven, six, and one. But to see the civic engagement that they have, their knowledge base, their interest in current events and politics, and really the agency that they feel and what they see their mom doing, it means so much to me that it's worth it. I was the first Kentucky representative to give birth in office. And that happened in 2020. And I took my baby when she was just a few weeks old on the floor. And I was giving a speech about women's health care. And the feedback from that was really powerful. You know, people weren't used to seeing that. It meant a lot to a lot of people here. And that meant a lot to me. But really, if I was the first woman in 2020 in the Kentucky House to give birth while serving, that means we have not had nearly enough women in their 20s, 30s, and 40s serving. But when you run and you start to see when you represent something more than yourself, and it's a pretty overwhelming feeling. When I first ran, we saw voter turnout go up amongst women in their 30s. So that representation piece is powerful. And so that was, you know, a white mom in her 30s, which you don't think of as a really unique identity. <laughs> but in political spaces, it is. But it speaks to how we need every identity out there so people feel seen and invited into the process. I love that. And my right-hand woman over here in my business, Allison, ran for mayor of her town with her little one strapped to her. Like yeah. you look at, I mean, I don't even know how old she was. And you look at all of her campaigning pictures and there's just baby little legs sticking out. And <laughs> I, I love it artifact so much. They're going to love to have these. Yeah. And just what a important... I think message it sends to so many people like, yes, both other women in their thirties. And, and I'm so glad to hear that about the voter turnout, but I just think in general, humanizing us in all of our roles and just being able to give space for both to be that mama for your little one and also out there representing women on the floor and their healthcare needs. So I think that's just so inspiring. So what do we do about this pay issue feels like a huge hurdle. 
what can, like someone who's listening to this right now, who's maybe activated the way that I am around making it more financially accessible for folks to run without having the very personal network to support them, what can we as a society do to shift this landscape? Long pause. (laughs) (laughs) Like more of us have to run. Like more of us have to go through the really grueling experience of being the first or the second or the third until we get the critical mass that we need to change the policy. We can be more public about it. Like I'll say, you know, as often as I can or post online as often as I can, like the salary for Kentucky State Legislature is $188.22 a day, right? Because people have no idea. They think we make a ton of money or they think we make absolutely no money. And so it's just, it's shining light on it. And of course that number is, there's 50 different numbers in 50 different states. So I think that civic education piece is huge. The the working toward the critical mass, like I know I'm asking women to do something really challenging, but I am. I just am. I say, we didn't make this mess, but like the moms need to clean it up, which is a very familiar <laughs> feeling. Uh. <laughs> and then, like 2021 America, that's just where we're at. <laughs> I think transparency is valuable. I'm thinking of if there were a woman who launched her campaign today, I'd want her to say, here's my annual salary. Here's what it costs to run this race. Here's what everything costs. I'd like to use this provision where I can use campaign funds for childcare and invite existing political donors and people in her circles that she's going to activate to become political donors. Do you want to invest in this different type of voice? And I think that's going to be exciting for people. We've seen record numbers of women elected in the last several years. And that's the headline. It's always a record number. Then you get to like, and we're still at 25% women or, you know, whatever it is. Congress, I want to name that Congress is made up of 6% mothers of young children. There's more Congress people who are prosecutors than mothers of young children. There are more Congress people who were born outside the United States then there are mothers of young children. So we're vastly underrepresented, but I think it's an opportunity to name these barriers and say, and I am one voice out of hundreds or thousands who are actively working to overcome it, but it's going to take a critical mass. And that's where we are. I wish everything were easier, but it's a tough moment. I want to reiterate though, that there are networks of support and that every piece of it is teachable, trainable, learnable, doable. I think the thing you're also saying, which is really resonating with me, is just this constant need to keep the short game and the long game in mind at the same time. And I think from an outside perspective, so much of what we see when we see people fundraising in political spaces, at least what I feel like I see, maybe the one of 200 emails I open, is like there's so much urgency, right? Like I don't remember the last time I read a fundraising email that had the long game message to it, right? It's like a lot of what we see is like, your donation will be 10x today. And if we don't get it by midnight, then like, you know, bah! Um, <laughs> and this like, real high urgency activation. And I think what you're saying that's actually super important is if that alone is how we view decisions to run for office or to invest in these campaigns, we're going to burn out on that message fast. And there's a long game here around what it takes to change the status quo in these different spaces that's actually going to allow us to shift the tides and create more space and enough momentum around these issues. Am I hearing that right? You put it well. That like That's the message I'm sending out into the universe. This is my hypothesis. I need some people to go and do it and report back. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's what I'm doing here in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, and it's working for me. But no, I was, it's so funny you said that about the emails. I was just writing down to ask you the question because, because the only thing that makes me doubt this, this sort of pure vision is that I get the same emails, right? If we don't raise $4,367 by midnight, the sky falls. And we know that's fake. It's so fake. And that doesn't work for me. But here's my question. Does it work? Because everyone keeps doing it. So I think, well, gosh, it must work. But I say, I feel so strongly about it. (laughs) that 
I'll never do it. I'll never do it because it's fraudulent. And if that's the end of my political career, that's it. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm really glad you said that because, well, first of all, I don't have the data and I can actually look maybe after this call and interject it or put it in the show notes if I can find some interesting data here around this. But what's super interesting about political fundraising to me is it actually breaks all the rules of nonprofit fundraising. I mean, you would never treat donors in nonprofit fundraising the way that people who give to political campaigns are treated in terms of like selling lists to other people. I'm like, I don't even know who you are. How did you get my email address? Oh, someone I gave to sold the list. If a nonprofit did that, they would get drag so bad. Like that is a big no-no. The other thing is around how much you're asking for money. It breaks every rule in the book around the relationship between kind of cultivation emails, emails that are just about having your audience become more problem aware or helping your audience feel a sense of belonging and community and like all these things. We spend all year doing this in our organizations to send out four to 10 asks a year, maybe. Right. And I have nonprofit clients that are like, you want me to send two emails in one week? And one of them, the ask is actually pretty buried. (laughs) Like after a big long story, it's like six a day. (laughs) Yeah. It's wild. It's not I wild. on congressional, like on U.S. Senate campaigns. Yeah. Like six a day, not at the local level. Right. But to me, first of all, I'm super happy to hear that that isn't your strategy and that there's a way to win and a way to raise money not doing it that way. Because my guess is that a lot of people, especially if they come from a nonprofit fundraising background, they're not going to want to fundraise that way. It does not feel in line with who they want to be as a fundraiser. And so my perception would be like, I wouldn't do that either. I would never do that. And so then I think this question of like, well, is that the only way to raise money comes up? And I just think that's impossible. I mean, I don't have the data to support it, but everything we know about human behavior, connection, belonging, especially when it comes to recurring giving, I think some data that would be super interesting to look at is how that type of fundraising, how political fundraising works in year one. And then what happens if the candidate doesn't win in terms of the repetition of folks giving in the next campaign cycle versus someone who fundraises more like a nonprofit, more with this long game, deeper relationship building in mind. My guess would be that over the lifetime of the candidate's races, the giving would be much, much, much higher taking the nonprofit model but it might not be higher in year one. Right. The kind of political fundraising we're talking about, which is a national form of fundraising, yeah. right? If you're like in a special election for a Georgia Senate seat, right? right. That kind. <laughs> Treating donors as disposable, right? Like you'll burn that bridge if you can get that 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't feel good to us. And you know what? Maybe it didn't feel good to those candidates who did it, but it felt necessary at the time. We're talking mostly about email, right? But the way most candidates at all levels, presidential down to your school board, the way that most candidates raise most of their money is call time, right? Or dialing for dollars. It's not email, right? So you'll sit down in a chunk. And I don't know if nonprofits do this at all. I doubt it, right? So you're supposed to calendar time two hours a day, three hours a day. You sit down, you have a call list in front of you. You call, Mallory, how have you been? How's the baby? I have an exciting announcement. I'm running for state representative. You know, I know we share the same concerns. You know, will you donate $250 to my campaign? Like, pause, (laughs) like sit, 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 right? And so when I talk to candidates, I want to name this and like normalize it, right? Like Barack Obama did this, (laughs) right? So you can do it for school board, but that's how most of the fundraising is done. Much more effective than email, but uncomfortable for folks. I remember I broke all the rules around it because you're supposed to have dedicated time on your calendar and sit down and have someone staff you, have someone sit with you. As soon as you get the commitment, you hand them the phone to take the credit card number, right? Because you're dialing the next number. I had little kids. So I did my call time 
on the way to and from daycare in the mornings and afternoons, right? And then if I had to write something down, I grabbed like a diaper from the passenger seat and scribbled it down. So that's how I did it. I remember I called my uncle Lee, who I never called before and I've never called since. And he thought someone had died. Like he saw my name pop up on the phone. and was like, Josie, what's wrong? I was like, oh, nothing. I just need 500 bucks. So that's different than nonprofit fundraising, I imagine. Yeah, we do do that. There's some of that. There's some of the cold calling. But what's really interesting is that I would say that those effectiveness numbers are sort of switched from a email perspective and a call perspective. So perhaps it is this relentless emailing that is actually decreasing the effectiveness of those emails over time, right? The prompt has sort of law. I mean, I do a lot of work around habit building and behavior change. And we think about the moment that a person is going to take action. There has to be a certain combination of how motivated the person is to take action and how easy the action is to take. And then making sure that the prompt falls above the action line, right? There's enough of each, the prompt falls above the action line. The thing is, is like my guess is that when folks are emailing that frequently, the prompt doesn't work because the moment your folks stop opening your emails because they're all the same, the prompt is wasted. So then you know what you do? You just buy more. <laughs> you just buy another list. From the other person I gave to, right? And that's how I end up on all these lists. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, so it sounds weird to you and me. You know, we'll both have to go and find like a... Someone who worked on a president uh, email <laughs> fundraising team and find out why they do that. Yeah. I think what's really interesting here is, and not to be judgmental and say this thing is bad, but just to recognize for nonprofit folks who are listening to this, who are like, I might be interested in running for office one day, but I don't want to have to do it that way. I think it's really interesting to hear your story and that that's how you have felt too. And that there is another way to show up and to fundraise. And there are a lot of different ways to do that, depending if you have an uncle to call or not. And so I just want folks to recognize that just like with fundraising for a nonprofit, really making like aligning it with who you are as a fundraiser and as a nonprofit leader, that's critically important if you're running for office too. Yeah. Campaigns and campaign strategies are always evolving, right? There's best practices, but maybe you remember growing up like I do. Candidates used to give out nail files with their with their logos and stuff on them. Who, who nobody does that anymore, right? Was it really effective then? Would it be really effective now? Like, why did that practice fall off? So, so things are always evolving and changing. A couple of years ago, I remember everyone said like, "Mail is dead. Political mailers are dead." Right? You need to put all your money in digital. And then Facebook changed its ad mechanism. You know who can follow. And then everybody was in quarantine and it was like, mail's the future. <laughs> Everyone's dying to get their mail every day. So everything's always changing and it's so ripe for innovation and new strategies and like authentic connection, like everything, right? People I think are hungrier than ever for authentic connection or reconnection. And the skills are so transferable. We're talking about differences between nonprofit fundraising and political fundraising, but like making the case and making the ask are so transferable. And especially when you're thinking about political spaces, making the ask is the most important skill because you start out making the ask for dollars and that enables you to get, you know, your cards printed with your picture of you and your dog. And then you're using those to make the ask for the vote. And then hopefully you're elected. And, and then you're asking your colleagues, you're making the ask to your colleagues to co-sponsor your bill. And then you're in a hearing and you're making the ask for people to support, you know, the testimony they're hearing about this new policy. And so especially people who have been making asks, make a few more and join me in the policymaking <laughs> space. We need some help. I love that because I think what you're reminding us all of is that fundraising is just one other form of advocacy. And I think because of so many of the stigmas and taboos around money, it tends to be a form of advocacy that we get even more uncomfortable about. Like I've heard from so many fundraisers, 
I can go into a space and advocate for my program, my organization to partner with blank. But like the moment I have to say that comes with a financial commitment, my whole stomach drops, right? For I'm so scared. And that's related to so many beliefs that we hold about money and value and investment and charity and all these like old school belief systems. And so I think what's so important about what you're saying is that money is a mechanism, is a tool to create change. It's one of the tools to create change and you advocate for it in the same way you're advocating for these other things. To spread your message, right? And to invite people into this process, to invite people to make their voices heard, to invest in their neighbors and their communities and the values that they believe in. I always think about some other advice I got very early on. Someone said, how does it feel to ask for money? And I, and I was like, Ooh, bleh, bleh, right? And then they said, how does it feel to give money? And I was like, amazing. I feel so good, <laughs> right? To help someone or invest in something you believe in. And if we can just get people who are thinking about entering the public sphere to flip that switch like I did, people are going to feel really good to invest in you and the cause that you're advocating for. I could not agree more. And I'm so glad you said that because I think for women in particular who do want to do heart-centered work or trying to make a positive impact, they have so many, I mean, we all do biologically have caretaker, harmonizer tendencies, right? And so we don't want to rock boats. We don't want to be in situations where we might do something that will make someone not like us, like it activates all of our like community Mm -hmm. building Mm -hmm. cells. So I think those mindset shifts around our first sort of go-to when the fear of fundraising comes up is we're doing that they're going to be mad at me for asking, or my friends might not invite me to parties anymore because they always talk about my nonprofit, (laughs) like all these things. And then we think about what it feels like when our friends talk to us about something that's so important to them. And when we're able to support their work and how good that feels. And so I think there's so much here, both in terms of women getting involved in civic leadership, in order to cause a big tidal wave on some of these issues and also what happens inside us when we become embodied in our message and advocating for the things we believe in and the way we change as women in those moments. I think for me, that's been so transformational and I think you model that so much. Oh, thanks. It makes me feel alive when I see someone else feeling alive, right? Advocating for a cause and just makes me say like, hell yeah, I'm all in. Let's do this. What's up next? Yeah. Okay. How can people find you and what? Usually I invite folks at the end of these episodes to shout out a nonprofit that they love if they want to highlight so people can check out and give, or if there's another candidate you want to highlight and shout out or like, what's the action? What's the call to action right now? Well, you can find me at JosieRaymond.com or Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at rep. Josie Raymond. I would love for people to follow along. Whether you're in Kentucky or not, you might find it interesting (laughs) what we've got going on in Kentucky politics. What I'd encourage everybody to do is go to runforoffice.org. Whether you're thinking about running or not, you type in your address. It shows you the list of positions, elected offices in your area. And this is a great place to start finding out who your state representative is, who your state senator is, who your city council person is, your sheriff, your jailer, your coroner might be elected. You know, see who's elected in your area, who they are. Then you can get to their website, their Facebook page, their legislative page, and learn more about who they are, what they're bringing to the role, and what they campaigned on. And if you see things that bother you, if you think you could do a better job, let me know. JosieRaymond.com. We'll talk about it. I love it. I love it. And for everyone listening to, I really want to encourage some additional dialogue around the importance of investment in political campaigns far beyond whether or not the candidate is winning or losing. We'll talk in some of these other episodes about how many times it typically takes. You have been the unicorn, right? But it typically takes before someone wins the seat and why it's just so important for all the things we said in terms of getting different issues to the tops of people's conscious mind and added to holding other elected officials accountable. There's so many important components to supporting politicians who are running on the values and action items that you believe in. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Josie, for joining me today and having this conversation. Thanks for having me. You know, there's literature that says that people, women especially, have to be asked to run for office three or four or five or six times. And so for everybody out there, I'm asking you, 
<laughs> Here's your first time, or maybe Here's your, your second. First ask, or maybe <laughs> a couple times, and this is that tipping point. Yes. And and if that's not right for you, I'd say give five dollars to a candidate in your area. See what it feels like, and see what kind of response you get. It's going to mean a whole lot to that person, and it's going to involve you in the process uh, that maybe you've not been involved in before. And I guarantee you're going to feel more invested in elected politics in your community. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Did you enjoy that conversation as much as I did? Josie honestly has me thinking about how I can be more involved in my local leadership. And I hope the same is true for you. And regardless, I hope you're taking away some of these top tips around how to engage your community in your work. To get all the detailed show notes from this episode, head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast. You'll find more information there about Josie's incredible work, as well as how you can connect with her and other folks at Lee. But right now, what I want you to do is head to the next episode, episode 18.2, to meet Tanya St. Julian, Chief of Staff at Leadership for Educational Equity. Far from the disenchantment many of us feel for politics, Tanya believes that engaging civically and politically is the road to change. And what she teaches us about how to be buoyed by wins and play the long game will forever change the way that I show up in this space. Lastly, as always, thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day. And I hope to see you in about 30 seconds over at episode 18.2. loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.